Let's turn together to 1 Peter chapter 3. This is on page 1392. The Bible's in your seats. 1 Peter chapter 3. Be reading verses 1 through 6. Listen as I read God's word. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Wives, likewise, submit to your own husbands. When you hear those words, what do you think of? Submission is a loaded term these days, and it's used in a lot of different ways. Perhaps you might think of a mixed martial arts fight. The end of that fight is a submission. The two opponents get into the octagon of doom, and they fight against each other. They pummel and pound each other. They twist their arms and their legs. They put a chokehold on them until one of them submits, either by passing out, being knocked out, or by being so hurt by the pain that's been delivered to them that they tap the mat and say, I'm done, I submit. It may sound a little bit like what happens between brothers and sisters sometimes at home, jumping off the top of the bunk bed onto the head of the little brother. I submit, I submit, uncle, uncle. Well, we can laugh at that. But perhaps you think of an abusive husband. One that intimidates his wife. One that hurts her physically or emotionally with either literal blows or with threats. He may even quote this verse and say, See, I told you so. You have to do what I say, you have to submit. Sadly, those examples are not far away. Sadly, it happens. And unfortunately, the word that is used here can then carry a lot of that negative baggage when it doesn't need to. 
the Bible uses the word submission, but uses it not in these negative ways or abusive ways, but to describe something of a relationship within an ordered society where there is someone who leads and someone who follows. But because of all of the negative baggage, we can stumble over this verse. In fact, you may hear that very first phrase, wives submit to your own husbands, and you can't go any further because you can be so triggered by that term submission that you don't go forward to see what is going on in the rest of the passage. In fact, the subject of submission comes to dominate this passage in a way that can make you miss the whole point of the passage. Because in this passage, Peter is giving you examples of how the life of a Christian in this world is a testimony to Christ. I'll come back to this a little bit later, but Peter starts by saying, wives, likewise, submit to your own husbands. That likewise means that there's something that's gone before. Something that has gone before is that Peter is telling you how to live in a very difficult world, a world where, where there is hatred of Christianity, the oppression of a government, the harshness of a master over a servant, the unbelief of a husband. How, as a Christian, are you to live? Well, Peter says that you can live in a way that testifies to the gospel of Jesus Christ, live such good lives in their eyes so that they see the light of the gospel. They may even come to praise God on the day of his visitation. So today I want to tackle this difficult passage by directing you to Jesus, by directing you to this main idea that wives that God enables you to live in such a way that your husband may see the light of Christ in you. And I will also, just by way of introduction, say that uh, the unbelief of a, of a husband can be mirrored as well by the unbelief of a wife, and there are certain principles that you can take that are similar. The structure of a family, the structure of a, of a marriage, does have in mind this idea of there being leadership and following, therefore submission to authority. Let me begin then by answering the question, submission, what is it? So I'm going to define it in the context of this biblical context. I've suggested that there are other ways that we define submission that give that negative baggage. But when I preach from chapter 2 as the subject of submission was coming up, I used a definition by the commentator, Dr. Doriani. He says, to submit means to arrange one's life under the authority or guidance of another. To arrange one's life under the guidance or authority of another. I like that definition because it protects the essential dignity of the individual who is under the authority of someone else. It protects their dignity so that they then 
voluntarily live in a humble way within the order of the institutions that God has created us to live in. And in the case of marriage, by faith, a wife respects her husband in all things that are lawful. Now note, I said she respects her husband, not all men. This is not misogynistic, placing men in a higher, better category than women. And note as well that that submission is in all things that are lawful. Submission is not bound when ordered to sin. Rather, we obey God rather than men. Doriani then goes on to say that a submissive wife accepts her husband's leadership in general. She listens, she expects him to lead, and does not chafe under that burden of following. She understands that submission does not undermine her dignity, but expresses it. It does not undermine dignity to be under authority. Rather, it expresses dignity. Well, this comes from the broader teaching of Scripture, and Peter draws this in in chapter 2, verse 16, when he says that we are free, but then live as bondservants of Christ. That broader teaching of Scripture affirms that men and women are each created in the image of God and are full inheritors of the gift of salvation and of that inheritance that Christ gives. That means that submission isn't some mindless servitude. Instead, one that lives within the order that God has instituted in society, whether that authority be governments or relationships or marriage or parents and so on and so on. Lots of structures of order and authority that we live under. Furthermore, God is the one who gave marriage. God is the one that gave that, and it bears witness to the glory of the Creator and the love of our Redeemer. It testifies to the Creator. So think about how God Himself, as He created mankind, created Adam first, and He said, It is not good for man to be alone. So created a woman to be with Adam, a wife to be with her. So by God's good design, it was good, it is good, it was and is good for a man to leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. But marriage testifies to that. It testifies to the love of the Redeemer. So think and meditate on all the ways in which the scripture uses marriage as an analogy for the love that God has for his church. Jesus is spoken of as being the groom and the church being the bride. And Jesus, as a perfect Savior, loves the church with a perfect love, a self-sacrificing love that then is a model and an example that is given to husbands as to how they are to love their wives. And the turnabout is, is, is very similar. As a church, 
we, in love and appreciation for what Christ has done, submit ourselves to him. He is the head of the church, and we are the body. We follow his lead out of gratefulness for the salvation we have, again, becoming a model for marriage itself, and a testimony to those who would observe, a living testimony to the gospel, and that's really what Peter's point is. The way you live testifies to the saving power of Christ. It's true in submission to government, even when they slander you. It's true when it's written about masters, even when they are harsh. Likewise, wives, submit to your own husbands, even if they are not Christians. So something of a summary, I want you to remember these words from chapter 2, what Peter said, just as he's beginning to launch into this whole section on submission. Starting in verse 11, Peter says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to, here he launches into government, and then masters, and then husbands. The ideal of marriage, then, is that you would live together as husband and wife, that you would love each other as Christ has loved you, and that your mutual love and submission would testify to the truth of the gospel. But I hear you ask, what if my husband sins against me? What if my husband is angry at me and says harsh words? The reality is that sin has corrupted the marriage relationship, hasn't it? Tempted to ask if I could get an amen. (laughs) Sin has corrupted the marriage relationship. Though redeemed by Christ, we still sin. It wages war in our souls. That old nature that was what we once walked in and lived in and practiced, it's developed habits, and those that are closest to us bear the brunt of it all too often. Our wives especially. You can see this in the battles against sin that, uh, that the New Testament calls your attention to. Uh, just gathering some together in one of those lists, Colossians chapter 2, we battle against fornication, uncleanness, passions, evil desire, and covetousness, which, I, which is idolatry. We stand in anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language, lying to one another. 
This is Paul addressing the church. He's addressing believers. We do sin. And part of Jesus' work is to deliver you out of the power of that sin and to progressively deliver you out of the practice of it as well. But it's a process that will, will stretch from your conversion until glory. Until you die, we will still sin in this life. And there is something of, a, of an agonizing conundrum about this. So applied to marriage, Peter calls wives to give yourself to your spouse. Does sin make that hard? Yes. Yes, you better believe it, it does. But God's grace abounds where sin abounds. And God's grace enables you to live in such a way that responds when your husband sins against you in a righteous way, in step with the Spirit, rather than responding in kind with anger returned or with, uh, with recriminations or retaliation. Fact is that when you are sinned against, you have a redeemer who understands that and who has forgiven you. Once more, in the context of marriage, what the Lord does is he enables you as husband and wife to learn to live together, redeemed children of God who still sin and sin against each other. And he teaches you to Confess when you have sinned against your spouse. And when your spouse comes and confesses to you, to hear that and to forgive, even as your heavenly Father has forgiven you. And the gospel shines through in really this glorious way. Because to err is human. To forgive is divine. Is it not? To forgive is divine. It testifies to the gospel of Jesus Christ that I have received forgiveness and therefore forgive others as well. So as your spouse, in this case husband, sins against you, keep in step with the Spirit not respond in kind, but in gentleness and humility. Forgive from the heart. Be forbearing with those who sin against you. And forgive as you have been forgiven. But I also hear you ask, what if my husband isn't a Christian? What if my husband is not a believer? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because that's exactly what Peter's dealing with here. He's dealing with a couple where the wife is a Christian and the husband is not. That would have been 
common in Peter's day as the gospel was moving out into pagan culture, that, that one spouse would lead the way in believing and the other would be left in their unbelief. In this case, it's the wife who believes and the husband who, who does not. This is certainly a very difficult thing, difficult in any age. And it's been noted uh, by commentators that in Peter's day that the wife was supposed to follow the husband in his religious beliefs. So there was no division in a family between uh, someone who believed in the Greek gods. The husband went to the temple, the wife did too. But here, when a wife is converted to Christianity, she was in a difficult position of loving and following the Lord exclusively and yet being married to an unbeliever. But even here, like submitting to a harsh government or to a harsh master, submission to an unbelieving husband is to arrange yourself under his authority in all things that are lawful. To respect the authority of that institution where there is lawful agreement and subjection. To show respect in all things lawful is, is, a, is a godly testimony and like the previous circumstances, Peter points out that it is not only a, uh, an aspect of, of an expression of your faith, but it is also a testimony to the watching world. There is something of an evangelistic aspect to this because our reaction to those who sin against us is indeed a living light to the person and work of Jesus Christ. By your actions, your husbands may be won by your conduct, by what they observe. By the way, this same goes in the situ- where the situation is opposite, and I know that this is the case for some of you. The husband is a Christian and the wife is not. Your conduct is a living gospel message. Just a summary, I'll quote Dr. Doriani once more. The believer should hope to convert an unbelieving spouse, if he or she has one, not by lecturing fervently, but by living well. There is a time to talk, but pushing and harping hardens people. Peter knows that an unbeliever can have misgivings about his or her spouse's new faith. But Peter says, in essence, live so well that he is glad that you follow Jesus. Live so well that he is glad that you follow Jesus. Well, let them see the difference of the conversion that has taken place. Let them see Jesus in you. That's the main idea of this passage. What does this look like? Well, Peter's going on to some very practical examples of this. And uh, 
And my observation, we gravitate towards those practical examples in a way that can, can derail the main idea. So I have really emphasized that main idea of living well so that your spouse sees Jesus, so that you now understand these practical examples. What does this look like? Well, Peter makes several applications of living well in mar- marriage. And I've taken these headings from, uh, from Harold's commentary on 1 Peter. Actions, not words, is the first. Wives, submit to your own husbands so that they may be won by the conduct of their wives without saying a word. Now, at some point, the gospel must be spoken, must be explained. It, it is a, there is content to the gospel But your actions must also align with the gospel that you speak. Your actions must be in agreement with how uh, how you speak about your Savior, Jesus Christ. Your faith is not only spoken, but it is indeed lived out. But think of the pressure that that brings in your relationship. Pressure when you are sinned against. To talk back, to complain, to get angry, to argue, to nag, to pout, to shout. Think of the witness that is. In this case, actions speak louder than words. And if your conduct runs towards conflict rather than respect, your action will lead your unbelieving husband or wife to think, if this is Christianity, I don't want anything, any part of it at all. But by faith, when you respond in a way that is in step with Jesus Christ, you testify the power of his saving, uh, saving you from your sin. Second practical application, pure and reverent conduct. This comes from Peter's words in verse 2, speaking of chaste conduct accompanied by fear. I'll define those two terms. Think again of that, of that temptation as you face difficulties. You face the temptation to get even or to get angry, to get anxious, to argue with anything and everything that comes out of your husband's mouth. But the path of Christ is different, isn't it? It's still difficult, but it is chaste. That word means pure. To use the the scripture, it It is not overcome by evil, but overcomes evil with good. It is chaste and pure. It is in step with Jesus Christ. It doesn't return evil for evil. It is still difficult, but it is accompanied by fear, Peter also says. In this case, with It is accompanied with reverence. That's what the term means here, reverence for God. It practices living well because you 
believe God and you are reverently honoring him with your life, asking that you would be a living sacrifice to him, ordering all of your life in a way that testifies that you are his child. You are like Christ, that when he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Third practical application is adornment and essence, or here's Peter's words again, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Here's another place where a lot of ink has been spilt. We, we gravitate to these places, wondering what this means and oftentimes making applications that miss the context in which Peter is speaking and miss that main idea of our lives being an example. And here the context is important because it is pointed out by historians that what Peter and other passages, similar passages list are actually practices that are indicating promiscuity or maybe even prostitution. In a marriage, this is how a wife is acting. Well, that is testifying to something completely different. And Peter is saying, your life needs to model a reverence for God and adornments that indicate otherwise need to be done away with. In that context, that was an application that could be made. In our context, those uh, uh, the wearing of gold jewelry or certain clothing is, is not an indication of promiscuity or of, uh, of prostitution. So we need to have wisdom in applying that. But more so, there is an emphasis on the inner beauty or the essence, as Harold calls it, the essence of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And that essence is one that is built up in godliness, is built up in, uh, in humility and in the practice of the fruit of the Spirit. Once more, being applied into, into marriage itself, you can see how appropriate those things are. To be putting on the fruit of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. This is the inner beauty of the heart, the godliness of the heart. It may be that your behavior in such a way is missed by your husband, but Peter says that God does not miss it. This is pleasing and precious in the sight of God. And the final example here is that of of. Uh, of what I'll call holy examples. Because Peter closes this portion by, uh, by pointing out some Old Testament examples of the godly women in the Old Testament that are raised up as examples of faith. By the way, just note 
the high esteem that is given to women of faith all throughout Scripture. Here, Peter uses them as an example to teach us. So some were married to unbelievers. Some were married to scoundrels. Think of my series of sermons through 1 Samuel. And Abigail, who was married to Nabal, the fool. And think of how her behavior modeled Jesus Christ. But specifically here, uh, Peter refers to Sarah and how she refers to her husband Abraham as Lord. What Peter is calling attention to is the passage I read from in Genesis chapter 18, where God came and told Abraham and Sarah that this time next year I will return and you will have that child that I have promised to you, a child that had been decades in coming. And earlier in Sarah and Abraham's life, they had battled with unbelief. And when they did not submit to God's will, they got trouble. They got Ishmael. But as they entrusted themselves to the Lord, as they entrusted themselves to his promise, they got the child of blessing. They got Isaac. Sarah believed God. Was it hard? Well, yes, it was. She was still battling unbelief and laughed at this promise of God. And there was a certain amount of terror as the Lord found her out. But God reaffirmed her and Sarah and Abraham entrusted those promises of God and did indeed have that child of promise looking forward to the ultimate child of promise, Jesus Christ. These four examples are applications that rise up out of, out of Peter's context. And our job is to, to take those principles and to say, how are they applicable in our world today? And so there is more work to do. There's more work for us as believers to take hold of these things and learn how to live in a way that honors God, that our marriages can be a light, a light to the world and a light to an unbelieving spouse, so that may it be that God would bring them to conversion by what they observe in our lives. One last brief word. Let me also just be very blunt here and say that husbands who abuse their wives are guilty of grievous sin. This is not a passage that gives you any license to abuse your wife physically, emotionally, or spiritually. God rises up to defend the defenseless, and he is also given uh, in this life those who are to protect and to defend. He is given the police. He is given the church. And the church has the responsibility to do justice, 
to deliver the oppressed, to confront and discipline when there is genuine abuse that is taking place. And sadly, the church does not have a good track record in this area, but I pray that such a passage will train us to understand how we as a church should react. And it starts by understanding that uh, understanding what submission really is. It is not a license for abusive men to control their wives. Rather, it speaks of an act of faith that leads a wife to respect her husband in all things lawful, to arrange herself willingly within the order of marriage in which she lives, and in doing so, to testify of her faith, to testify of Jesus' power to save. I do pray that in all of these areas that we would be examples to a watching world, that as we live, they would observe Jesus Christ in us, that our marriages would be an example as well. May it testify to your husband, to your spouse, the goodness of God and his power to save. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the good gift of marriage that you have given to us. So blessed by the institution that you have made, the comfort that we have, the companionship. We are grieved by the sins that have corrupted that. And yet, Lord, we pray that your grace may abound even so. Pray that you would make us to be men and women of faith. Make us to be husbands and wives of faith. By grace, we would live out our lives in humble reliance upon your grace, in humble reliance on a God that has saved us from our sins, that in the context of marriage, that wives would testify to this power of your salvation in their submission to their husbands. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. response, let's sing Psalm 128b. Speaks of the blessing of all those who fear the Lord's name. It, uh, it's demonstrated in, uh, in the lives of husbands and wives, fathers and mothers and children. We rejoice in this. Let's sing Psalm 128, Selection B. Please stand to sing. <laughs> 